welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Dr Richard Dunley from the University of New South Wales, Canberra, at the Australian Defence Force Academy. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the Royal Australian Navy and replenishment at sea. To tell this story, I'm joined by Commodore Alison Norris. As a captain, Alison commanded the replenishment ship Success and previously commanded the frigate Melbourne. She's currently Director General of State Service Delivery. Alison is also the Vice President of the Australian Naval Institute. John Perriman. John is the Director of Naval History at the Sea Power Centre Australia. He also served in success as her signals yeoman. Online from HMAS Cerberus, we've got Captain Ainsley Moorthorpe, who commanded success from 2011 to 2012, and previously commanded the patrol boat Fremantle. He also commanded the naval base in Darwin, HMAS Coonawera, and fleet-based west, HMAS Sterling. Of relevance to this podcast, he was Deputy Director of the Afloat Support Capability in Navy HQ in Canberra, which prepared the Cabinet submission for the new supply class replenishment ships. Ainsley is now Commanding Officer of the Navy Main Training Base, HMAS Cerberus. Finally, we've got Commander Tony Ladomirsky, who is Commanding Officer of the Euler HMAS Australia, and is now attached to the Naval History Section of Sea Power Centre Australia. So we're going to start back in the uh, early part of the 20th century, and we're going to start with you, John. Um, so as we move into the sort of the Royal Australian Navy begins its its operational, I guess, history um, in, in the, the First World War, um, you suddenly see uh, a need for uh, this type of replenishment at sea. So what is it that, that takes place? What drives this requirement and, and what happens in order to support um, the Royal Australian Navy? Thank you, Richard. Now, that is a really great place to start. It's a really good question. Um, If one looks at imagery of the Royal Australian Navy Fleet Unit arriving in Sydney Harbour on the 4th of October 1913, the astute observer will notice that while there's a lot of warships there, there is no auxiliary ships to be seen in any of that imagery. And that's really, really insightful. Now today, this is absolutely inconceivable because we understand the importance of having a well-balanced fleet that includes fast underway replenishment ships, supply ships. But one has to understand that more than 100 years ago, navies the world over made use of the merchant navy service to supply and sustain them, as well as fixed points on the globe where they'd established replenishment and coaling stations. So we did not have that mobile capability. And this certainly was the case um, in the Royal Navy right up until August 1905 when it first started to give serious thought to this and it established the first Royal Fleet Auxiliary, or the RFA as it was known. Now, the creation of the RFA saw a number of auxiliary ships placed directly under Admiralty control, guaranteeing their availability in support of operational service, meaning that they were at the Admiralty's and the Royal Navy's disposal. Now, notwithstanding that, it was to remain largely dependent on merchant ships in addition to those vessels, and in particular colliers, coal-carrying ships. And it must be remembered that uh, in those times, most of the ships were coal burners, some were, some were oil burners as well. But in order to sustain operations beyond British control ports, they needed to have those supply ships with the uh, fleet units. In Australia's case, the first reference to a Royal Australian Fleet Auxiliary vessel is the oil tanker Corumba, and that didn't appear in our Navy list until July 1914. 
July 1914. Uh, she was completed in England in 1917, which is kind of interesting, and served with the Royal Navy throughout World War One, and didn't actually arrive in Australia till 1920, which didn't do as much good out here in the Antipodes. Consequently, because of that, a number of merchant ships were taken up from trade by the Australian Navy to fulfil that important role, and chiefly to enable the imperative to deploy the Australian Naval and Military Expeditionary Force to capture and neutralise Germany's possessions in the Pacific and New Guinea. So, what sort of ships are we talking about? Well, among these were the oil tankers Murex and Molina, and the colliers Kalonga, Waihora, and Fangapay. And each of those vessels uh, were to sustain the Aryan fleet during the ensuing operations in New Guinea and elsewhere in the Pacific over the next few months. Another oiler, the Asturia, was requisitioned to sustain Aryan destroyers operating in Southeast Asia, while the Hankow, an ageing uh, coal hulk, was moored in Sydney Harbour to sustain the fleet in Sydney. So you see this uh, realisation when the Navy actually goes on the front foot, particularly with the Australian Naval and Military Expeditionary Force, that here's a capability we don't have, we need to do something about that, and they start taking uh, ships up from trade. Stores carriers were of equal importance, and the Orangi uh, was uh, chartered in 1914 to fulfil that role. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about how, in theory, this worked really, really well, but it didn't always go the way we anticipated. And there's a really great example in 1915 of the light cruiser uh, HMAS Pioneer operating in German East Africa. So it's all the way out on the other side of the world. They're uh, looking at uh, blockading uh, the Königsberg in the Rafiji River off East Africa. And as I said, they need coal to, uh, to do that. And their collier was a ship named the Kendall Castle. Now, the master of that vessel uh, was ordered to come alongside HMAS Pioneer uh, with a view to coaling that vessel. And for reasons of concerns about navigation, the master of the vessel decided, no, I'm not going to do that. So the Pioneer again, the captain of the Pioneer, Biddlecombe, again directed the uh, Kendall Castle to, you know, come alongside to coal. Again, he refused. So... He went to the senior officer and said, look, you know, we're having this problem. What do you suggest? Go ahead and coal. Again, the master of the Kendall Castle would not do it. So Pioneer said, well, that's okay. What we'll do is we'll come alongside you. So in making her approach, she realised that the vessel still had its navigation lights on, which indicated that it was underway. In fact, she was at anchor. So Pioneer then found herself ahead of the Kendall Castle, in a position where it would have been fairly easy for the Kendall Castle to come alongside and coal. Um, again, the master of the vessel refused, to the point where Biddlecombe ended up firing a shot across its bows with a view to encouraging it to do so. Suffice to say that uh, coaling didn't take place on that occasion. So that's a fairly long answer to your question, but uh, it shows that, you know, highlighting the fact that we, we didn't have it when we started, we took vessels up from trade, and it didn't always go the way that we anticipated. Thanks, John. That's great. Really setting the scene there and, and sort of highlighting what this requirement is and some of the challenges that, that come out of that. 
Um, Ainsley, going over to, to you, um, John's mentioned Colliers uh, and talked about some of the, the sort of the importance of this. Can you explain a little bit about how ships take on coal in this time? Um, obviously, uh, sort of this is this is a very different sort of sets of technologies and types of ships to what perhaps some of our listeners um, are accustomed to um, or, or sort of can can imagine. Um, so, do you want to just give us a little bit of background um, about that? Yeah, thanks, Richard. Um, I'm going to apologise up front. The uh, in the way these things play out, the lawnmower man has just turned up outside my office. So uh, the joys of doing this remotely. Um, one of the things that I, uh, I thought I'd start with is wonderful photographs that you can see uh, from the late 19th century, early 20th century of uh, ships, Royal Navy ships, uh, American ships and Australian ships who were who are coaling. And uh, it was one of those activities that was a whole ship activity. Everybody on board had to get involved, including the captains. And uh, you all wore your oldest clothes because for about three days you were basically rolling around in coal and coal dust. It was a pretty uh, dirty activity. Um, and that was one of the key things about how ships coaled in those days. Um, you needed to actually come alongside another ship um, to use the cranes that were available on the collier to get those things onto your deck. And then you basically had to manhandle them down into your your bunkers. Um, it was a dirty, long job and uh, it, it, it tied you to... Uh, either a coaling base, uh, and the British, the Royal Navy, had an extensive array of uh, different coaling bases, uh, courtesy of their uh, their empire reach, and uh, they were able to uh, pull into many different ports and uh, get coal from those areas, which would either involve coming alongside or coming alongside the uh, the collier out in the safety of the harbour. Um, the critical thing in this particular instance was twofold. One was you needed good weather to be able to do it um, because you were basically tying up alongside another ship. And the second one was is you were then tied to either that port or to that collier. Um, that was one of the things that made the Royal Navy uh, the preeminent power in the late 19th, early 20th centuries because they had such an extensive array of colliers and uh, and coaling ports but the activity fundamentally uh, was a stationary activity there were some trials that they did uh, at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century uh, to try and transfer coal at sea from colliers um, the the images of those uh, usually involved some incredible uh, seamanship uh, feet on the stern of the receiving ship um, and uh, like a flying fox system which would pass across to the collier and would allow them to uh, pass underslung loads across. But the important thing to note was that uh, even in the best of conditions, uh, very, very calm seas and uh, with, with everything going right, um, the best that they could ever really achieve was around about uh, 50 tonnes per hour of uh, coal to get across to the, uh, to the receiving ship. To put that into perspective, one of the battleships required about 2,000 tonnes and uh, even the smallest uh, ships like the destroyers required 200 tonnes. So at about 50 tonnes an hour, it was a long, drawn-out process. Uh, it was dangerous and it required very, very good sea states. So the primary way was to come alongside uh, a ship in a safe harbour to uh, transfer the coal across uh, and that activity would take days. Thank you. Um, just following up on that, uh, was the coal transferred sort of loose or was it transferred um, in, in, in bags uh, or, or other types of containers? The, I, I've seen pictures of loose, but uh, I know that uh, most of the uh, coal was being transferred in bags so that they could move them quickly and easily uh, down into the bunkers. 
um, that uh, like like even stores transfers today uh, it might arrive on the deck in a bag, but then it would be broken up and uh, carried down by sailors uh, piece by piece. It was a long drawn out process. Um, Alison, uh, so we've we've heard quite a lot from from Ainsley about um, uh, coaling and. Some of our listeners may know that there is a, a gradual shift uh, in the, the sort of early part of the 20th century from uh, oil burn from coal burning ships to oil burning ships. Um, but throughout the interwar period, quite a lot of the Royal Australian Navy remains coal burning. Um, therefore, the RAN decide to build a purpose fleet collier. Can you tell us something about her? Thanks, Richard. I'd like to build on uh, what John and Ainsley have already talked about with regard to replenishment vessels and the enhancement they provide to the Royal Australian Navy fleet. So HMAS Biloela uh, was built at Cockatoo Island Dockyard in Sydney, uh, commenced the build in 1920. It was a fleet collier operated by the Royal Australian Navy all the way through to 1927. Now, the interesting thing about uh, HMAS Biloela was at the time, it was the largest ship built at the Cockatoo Island Dockyard, uh, but it was also the first ship of the RAN to be built from Australian materials to an Australian design. So there were many firsts uh, that came out of this build in Sydney. Now, Biloela's main role was to support the Royal Australian Navy flagship, then HMAS Australia, uh, until she was decommissioned in 1921. But also, as you mentioned, Richard, she supported the four light cruisers that all burned coal as fuel. Now, this support wasn't just provided on the Australian station. Biloela also uh, supported these ships when they were visiting New Guinea and the Southwest Pacific region. Uh, but at the same time, she was also picking up coal from Port Kembla and dispersing it in some of the remote areas around Australia, which provided the RAN a level of flexibility and didn't require them to come all the way back down to Port Kembla off station uh, to uh, get more coal and continue on. So the examples of the ports where she provided the coal are Darwin and Thursday Island uh, and even back then they were strategic sites for us uh, in the RAN to work from particularly when we're focused on activities in New Guinea and uh, the Southwest Pacific. So uh, Biloela remained in service until 1927 after the majority of those coal burning ships uh, were decommissioned and she was transferred into the reserve on the 14th of November 1927. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, so moving out of the, the interwar period and into the Second World War, John, um, at the beginning of, of the Second World War, the RAN only had the, the oiler Corumba, um, but fighting a conflict uh, on that kind of scale and, and those kind of geographies, clearly more were needed. Um, what was done to, to kind of fill that gap? Well, it actually beggars belief, doesn't it, from what we've heard so far about recognising in World War One that we didn't have this capability and, and having to take so many ships up from trade that World War Two comes along and we, we're almost in the same position again. So it was a lesson we learnt the hard way, I would uh, suggest. So look, you're absolutely right. Corumba was the only uh, oiler in service with the Navy at the outbreak of World War Two, And as we've heard, by then she was, you know, pretty old and worn out. In the early stages of the war, she was confined chiefly to servicing the ships uh, on the Australia station, and, and that's where she remained. But with the extension of the hostilities in the Pacific and a growing need for more oilers, the British Admiralty made available to the REN the Norwegian motor vessel, the Falkifjell. 
Now, that served as an interim oiler for a little while, and she was subsequently replaced by the Bishopdale at 8,406 tonnes, which was a, a much better vessel for that sort of thing. She was lent by the Na uh, Royal Navy, and she went on to serve as a fleet auxiliary in the southwest Pacific area and in the Philippines. Uh, as we've heard, being an RFA, she had a mixed crew of REN and Merchant Navy personnel numbering 14 officers and 31 ratings, of which a number were Royal Australian Navy personnel. Now, Bishop Dale's service was action-packed. Um, on the 5th of August 1942, she struck an Allied mine east of Noumea, sustaining damage that saw her having to go back to Sydney to undergo repairs there, and that marked the beginning of a fairly exciting career for this ship. The following year, on the 11th of November 1943, while part of a convoy in Queensland, she was in collision, which again saw her have to go back and uh, have repairs made. And then uh, after that, she spent about eight months in New Guinea, northern New Guinea in Humboldt Bay, as a forward uh, mobile gas station, basically. So all of those operations taking place up in the northern areas of New Guinea, she was very, very um, important and strate well, strategically important in supplying fuel up there. Later on, she formed part of Task Group uh, 77.7, and she was there supporting the Allied landings at Leyte Gulf. Now, in December 1944, the action for Bishop Dale continued, and it was during the Leyte Gulf operations that she was struck by a Japanese VAL kamikaze aircraft. Uh, spectacularly, the aircraft hit the foremast, crashed into the starboard upper bridge wing, where it exploded, killing a number of personnel, including a Royal Australian Navy uh, gunner, 26-year-old Able Seaman Savage. Despite the damage and casualties, the tank remained at San Pedro Bay, providing fuel to Allied ships. So although damaged, she, you know, her fuel, her cargo had been preserved, and importantly, I might add, and she was able to continue to perform the role as a tanker uh, uh, in, in that situation. Uh, later on, she took part in the Mindoro landings, and after that, she reverted to Royal Navy control. There was another, the uh, Danish vessel, the Assi Maersk. Uh, she also saw service with the RN fleet, performing similar duties in the Pacific War. Wow, it sounds like the, the Bishop Dale had a, a, an exciting war. Oh, she had a charmed life in many respects. And, and when you uh, consider that she's sitting on a, uh, a highly volatile liquid cargo, she was very, very fortunate not to, uh, not to have been sunk. Yeah, certainly um, uh, being struck by a kamikaze uh, on, on a tanker is, is, is not something that, that one would, um, one would, would a position one would want to be in. Um, one imagines that she was very lucky. Um, Ainsley, so the RN obviously operates throughout most of the Second World War uh, in uh, sort of coal part of coalition forces with either the, the Royal Navy or in particular in the Pacific uh, Theatre with the US Navy. The US Navy pioneers much of the, the sort of the modern understanding of, of underway replenishment of, of fuel and stores. Can you explain to us a little bit about this, this development and what it meant for the Royal Australian Navy? Thanks, Richard. Um, I guess uh, the interesting thing is, is that some of the ideas about uh, what evolved into underway replenishment in World War II, they'd already started uh, looking at some of the ideas about how they might do that. Uh, and in fact, uh, the executive officer of a US uh, oiler, uh, a guy named Chester Nimitz, um, had perfected uh, an idea where he could pass fuel from the oiler across to uh, small ships, destroyers, 
uh, as early as 1917, uh, he actually got a whole bunch of uh, US Navy destroyers from America across to uh, Europe uh, by using uh, an alongside method of replenishment. Um, the work between the wars uh, continued with making better systems uh, where they had uh, stronger towing lines, uh, more complex uh, seamanship arrangements to enable them to get the lines across and uh, pump faster. Um, but the, they, they worked on two aspects. One was that they primarily did a stern replenishment uh, where they towed lines behind the replenishment ship to the customer ship. Uh, the customer ship then came up alongside the line that was floating about in the water, hooked it up, and they were able to pump uh, oil across to them uh, via that means. But again, it was only oil and uh, sometimes water, but there was no heavy stores that could be passed that way. Um, the method that Nimitz started working on and continued to perfect it right up until 1939, 1940, uh, was to bring ships alongside whilst they were underway, which required a more complex arrangement of derricks to uh, get, uh, in this case, hoses across to the other ship. Um, and the method that they used was essentially a high line where they could pass uh, the hoses on underslung across to the destroyer as the receiving ship and uh, pass, um, pass fuel. Again, it wasn't very efficient, wasn't very strong for stores, so it was really primarily limited to, uh, to liquid stores. Um, the consensus in between the wars had been that uh, you could only ever resupply underway uh, smaller ships like destroyers uh, or by using the stern refueling method. Now, those processes could still take hours, many, many hours too long, and it was very complex and it was difficult to connect them up. Um, the work that Chester Nimitz did uh, right up until 1939, 1940, uh, was to continue to develop a system which allowed a heavier uh, underslung load to go across between the uh, the two ships, the uh, replenishing ship and the customer ship. That uh, concept uh, is known now as the uh, uh, alongside connected replenishment or CONREP and uh, we also use uh, the system that Chester Nimitz developed which is uh, called the standard tensioned replenishment alongside method, uh, sometimes referred to as the stream method. Um, that method uh, revolved around the ability to uh, bring a, a customer ship up alongside the uh, replenishment ship at a faster speed. So we were now talking about 12 to 16 knots in the pre-war years. You were only talking about up to about seven or eight. Uh, it was very slow. And uh, again, they could carry heavier hoses, heavier loads underneath those underslung uh, uh, messenger lines to um, allow for stores to be delivered as well. Um, the critical thing that uh, this allowed was, and almost overnight, was them to break their ties to ports. Um, they could now take all of their weapons, their munitions, their fuel, their water, uh, remembering a lot of those ships in those days needed to be resupplied with water um, to allow them to continue uh, providing steam for their turbines, etc. Um, but they were able to uh, resupply those ships using these more and more complex and bigger uh, replenishment ships that they could uh, drive around with the fleets to essentially act as a mobile port. Um, the method that they would use is that uh, they would put the uh, supplying ship uh, on a steady course and speed uh, and then the customer ship, and we're now talking about ships getting up to the battleship size, would then be able to uh, drive up alongside that uh, replenishment ship at very close uh, distances. Um, we're talking about 30 yards, uh, 30 metres or so. 
at speeds of about 12 to 16 knots. Um, that was important because we were now able to use the hydrodynamics of the ships to uh, actually make this process a little bit easier and a little bit safer. Uh, as the water rushes between the two ships, it sets up a whole series of complex uh, suction and uh, push zones, uh, which uh, after time, expert ship handlers uh, are able to uh, pick the best spot to sit their ships and it actually makes the process even safer. Um, the process would be that the uh, a, a light line would be uh, then sent across to the replenishment ship, uh, which would then be used to uh, pull across uh, a messenger line, which is what everything hangs off, um, and then all the other uh, equipment that the uh, ships need, such as distance lines, phone lines, so that you could talk to each other on the bridge, uh, and uh, all other manner of uh, connections could be made by using that light line to get them uh, get them all connected up with the heaviest stuff. Um, you could also use multiple different types of transfer rigs now for the first time. So instead of having hoses underslung underneath the messenger line, you could now use uh, uh, a basically like a, a big pallet holder and uh, you could use that to also bring uh, things like uh, munitions and food uh, and other resupply items across. So for the first time, uh, and what made the war in the Pacific uh, winnable, uh, was that the uh, US forces and the Australian forces which joined them uh, were no longer tied to a specific port in order to prosecute their actions. Um, this also became critical as the war progressed because uh, the Japanese forces uh, ended up losing many of their resupply ports themselves. So uh, you ended up with a situation where the US and the Australian uh, maritime forces were essentially able to uh, go where they wanted, when they wanted, and uh, deliver whatever combat power they chose to against an adversary that was uh, becoming more and more locked into stationary points. Thank you very much. It's an extraordinary shift um, in terms of, of operational capability um, and, and this the ability to, as you sort of say, to, to sort of un, unconnect and unhitch from, from uh, fixed port bases. Um, so one of the, the features of, of the Pacific campaign um, is this requirement for these support ships uh, in order to operate in this huge environment um, uh, of, of the sort of the, the Pacific Ocean. Um, in addition to fuel and water, uh, the resupply of, of food, stores, ammunition, all these things that, that, that Ainsley's been, been explaining to us. Um, John, can you give us a little bit of, of background about how the RAN takes up and builds on these practices that we've heard um, uh, Ainsley talking about in a, a US Navy context, um, and in particular the the sort of the way they they go about in terms of ships and other capability uh, to enable them to to operate in this vast Pacific environment. I think Ainsley has set the scene beautifully for this because our marriage, if you like, working alongside the United States Navy's Pacific Fleet, taught us a heck of a lot about logistics and the need to maintain that mobility and we continued to take ships up from trade and and in this we saw some of uh, the more colourful names brought into the Royal Australian Navy as commissioned ships. There was uh, former Chinese uh, river vessels, the, the Wang Pu, the Ping Wo, the Yunnan, uh, some of the, the greatest names we've ever had arguably. <laughs> but. Uh, a strange fit in that in that logistic train but all of these ships they would carry ammunition they would carry the stores um, 
we did depend uh, chiefly on the United States Navy for the underway replenishment. And at this juncture, I'd just like to underscore that in addition to the logistic role and the importance of stores and ammunitions, when a ship came alongside one of these vessels in a lull in the action to replenish, it was a breath of fresh air. You got to see your allies up close and personal. Um, the communications between the ships, uh, you had signalmen in those days who would uh, send messages across using semaphore uh, hand flags to, to communicate with their, their new buddies on the other ships and things like that. So you got to see who your allies were, not from a distance, but as Ainsley said, from 30 or 40 yards off their beam. Uh, and then two words I like to throw into that equation, ice cream. The Americans had ice cream. And can you imagine uh, ships deployed, Royal Australian Navy ships deployed in the Pacific, been away from home for a long, long time, very, very few creature comforts, and all of a sudden you're plugging into this logistic train, which is uh, the United States Navy, and at your disposal, all of a sudden you're getting things like ice cream. Tiny little things like that do an enormous amount for morale. So look, there were a number of ships that we were we were using in New Guinea, uh, in elsewhere in the Philippines and, and later on during the uh, the landings in Borneo. Uh, we did learn those lessons, but we still were reliant very, very heavily on the United States Navy. We learned a lot from them in that process, and that put us in very, very good stead for uh, our post-war Navy and what was required. Wow. Well, the role of ice cream in winning the um, the Second World War is, is, is a new one on me. Tony, so the old... Kurumba finally pays off in, in 1948. Um, what's what's lined up to, to replace her as the, as the next fleet replenishment ship? Yes, well, of course, after the Second War, then Australia got interested in having some aircraft carriers. And, of course, it's the Sydney and the Melbourne, the two Majestic class. And it was recognised that they needed to be replenished. So whilst they still carried a lot of uh, fuel, they also needed to have a, re a replenishment ship. Now, um, the Royal Navy during World War II also was actively uh, busy perfecting replenishment at sea techniques, having observed uh, what Ainsley sorry, has talked about with regards to the American developments. So, of course, when uh, we decided that we wanted to have our own replenishment ship, we looked at the UK, and it was to basically have a one-stop shop. So the idea was that we would underway be able to provide the fuel, the water, the ammunition and the stores. Uh, in the case of uh, supply, uh, as she became, or eventually became known, um, we, the Australian government didn't actually order the ship until 1951. And she was launched in 1955. But then we gave it to the Brits to use. And we didn't get it back here in Australia till uh, 1962. Originally, we uh, commissioned her as the HMAS Tide Austral and then Supply. So what was different? So as I said, um, we incorporated lessons from World War II. And one of the things was speed and some form of self-defence. So that's what came with her. Um, the, other, the other thing that uh, we wanted and uh, had been incorporated in a lot of design work after World War II, was that you could simultaneously replenish on both sides and have multiple transfer points to do this. So you could then 
use the prevailing weather and sea conditions you know to the best case or to the worst case and still conduct the evolution uh, supply also was to have the cargo of being able to transfer furnace fuel oil which was what we were burning in those days aviation gasoline dieseline that was also in use water and uh, what comes later but could be done under uh, small quantities was uh, transferring solid cargo and usually that was only that at anchor or in the harbour um, but it, it must be remembered also that once we did get our two majestic class carriers uh, Melbourne and Sydney these two vessels could also replenish units so in some ways, we had three replenishment units, whereas carriers basically used to look after their escorts during deployments. So it just, just building on, is, is that why there was this quite a long period um, in which between um, uh, Corumba paying off in, in 1948 um, and supply finally actually getting uh, sort of into the... the the theatre and sort of operating with with Royal Australian Navy Navy ships uh, yes, in the early because 1960s. Melbourne and City could fill that gap. Excellent, uh, thank you. Um, so, John, moving forward again a little bit into uh, the Vietnam War, um, four of the RAN's destroyers took part um, uh, and were exposed to the USN's further advances in in underway replenishment. Um, can you talk a little bit about what these were and then uh, what impact they? sort of begin to have on the RAN. That's right, Richard. Look, all three of the uh, Royal Australian Navy's Charles F. Adam class, or as we call them, Perth class guided missile destroyers, served in Vietnam, as did the daring class destroyer HMAS Vendetta. Now, it's an interesting thing because at this point, uh, if you think of the enormous support effort of the United States Navy to keep its ships at sea in the Gulf, uh, the Tonkin Gulf, and also off the uh, east coast of Vietnam, carrying out naval gunfire support operations. They had a lot of logistic ships over there. The three Charles F. Adam class DDGs were the first American destroyers that the Royal Australian Navy had ordered. So when they went to Vietnam, being an American ship and plugging into that United States Navy 7th Fleet logistic organisation, it was seamless, you know? And it was little things like uh, couplings that married up. Uh, the the routines that they'd adopted and, and practised so much. Ainsley referred to the uh, the stream method uh, previously. That was further refined with what was known as the standard underway uh, replenishment fixture, the surf. So when you had a stream-surf combination, it composed a mechanised cargo drop reel. That cargo drop reel basically took a lot of the pain and misery of actually uh, transferring large wire pallets full of five-inch ammunition from a United States Navy uh, ammunition ship onto these DDGs. And their fire support missions would see them both refueling and re-ammunitioning at sea without leaving their station uh, every two or three days. And the other thing that needs to be uh, highlighted here, this could take place day or night. So by the, Viet by the time the Vietnam War came along, they had had uh, refined this method to such an extent that it was almost seamless. Now, on the one occasion where we didn't have a guided missile destroyer, an American-built one, uh, available to go to Vietnam, we sent the daring class uh, 
destroyer, a British-built ship, HMAS Vendetta up there. She was a very, very capable gun platform, but she used 4.5-inch ammunition, which was different to the 5-inch ammunition. So this presented a number of unique problems of its own, where the 4.5-inch ammunition had to be pre-positioned in Subic Bay in the Philippines, transferred onto a ship, and then supplied to Vendetta. Similarly, the first replenishment that she went to do with the United States ship, her couplings didn't match, and no one had foreseen that, so there were modifications required there. Once they were overcome, Vendetta proved to be a most capable gun platform as well, with uh, you know six guns available uh, most of the time and always two available at any given time. Um, I think that uh, it's worth mentioning also that to supplement the... Uh, logistics train to Vietnam from Australia's perspective we also took and we kept on taking vessels up from trade so we took up from trade HMAS Japarit so that was a motor vessel previously um, she was known as the Big J she conducted 17 voyages to Vietnam carrying ammunition and there was another interesting vessel the Boonaroo she was taken up from trade in uh, uh, 1967 following a, a strike she was commissioned for one voyage to Vietnam, and in so commissioning, she became the first Royal Australian Navy vessel to commission with the new Australian White Ensign uh, for one voyage to Vietnam, but she holds that distinction. But she also performed an important role of making sure that that ammunition, not just for the Navy, but for the first Australian task force, so the Army ashore in Vietnam, uh, the Navy played an important role in that as well, as indeed did the fast troop transport HMAS Sydney. So just building on that, John, um, one of the, the sort of developments around this time is, is the development of, of Vertrep. Can you please explain a little bit about what this is and, and how it um, uh, sort of how it begins to affect this the, the act of replenishment? Absolutely. Uh, the introduction of the helicopter into, into service in navies was is groundbreaking. You know, you don't build a ship nowadays which does not have a, uh, a flight deck on it uh, capable of receiving or carrying a helicopter. Um, when an aircraft such as a helicopter carries stores to fr from a supply ship to another, it's called a vertrep, a vertical replenishment. And in a, in a very, very busy replenishment operation, it's not uncommon to have the replenishment ship with uh, a ship on the port beam, a ship on the starboard beam. You could be transferring ammunition or a missile to one vessel, refueling another, passing AVCAT at the same time, and water, and receiving stores or transferring personnel using a helicopter. That's probably one of the busiest scenarios that you'll find with an underway replenishment at sea. Um, Vertrep operations were not solely confined to the transfer of stores and logistics. If you look at the case of HMAS Hobart, when she was uh, deployed to Vietnam, uh, they actually used Vertrep to transfer her medical officer and sick bay staff to the USS Forrestal when that ship uh, suffered a, a massive fire uh, and they needed all of the, the medical expertise that they could get. It was an absolute disaster on board that vessel. Uh, but the helicopters were able to reach out to other elements in the fleet and um, uh, you know, make use of that and get the people where, where they needed it. The other interesting thing that the helicopter uh, gives replenishment is what's known as the, the Matt Conoff procedure, the material control officer in a fleet. So you might have a, sh uh, a fleet that's dispersed broadly it might be uh, during operation 
let's take or an exercise like RIMPAC, for example, and there might be a vessel in that formation that has uh, a fault in a piece of equipment. So what they do is they'll signal around the fleet to say, listen, we don't have the part here. Does anyone else in the fleet have it? One of those ships will put their hand up and say, yeah, look, we've got the spare bit that you need, and the next day it'll come to you on the logistics helo, which means that you can get your ship back to uh, uh, fully functioning quicker. Uh, so that's a very, another very important you know, part of that. It's, it's a great utility to have. So it adds, adds a sort of real degree of flexibility and, I guess, speed um, and, and potentially distance as well. Oh, absolutely. And um, I think, you know, more localised, if you look at the Royal Australian Navy fleet and its day-to-day operations, uh, the helicopter and the ability to vertrep and transfer personnel, particularly when, um, you know, you've got sick people at sea, the days of conducting... Um, uh, uh, taking people's appendix out at sea in a, a rocking and rolling ship, you know, that may still happen, but uh, it's, it's very much in your favour if we can get you on the helicopter and vertrip you to uh, somewhere where it can be done properly. Excellent, thank you. Um, Ainsley, these developments which uh, are coming through uh, sort of largely out of the, the USN, but from experience in Vietnam, um, are then incorporated in a fast, the design of a fast support combat ship or fast combat support ship to replace the supply. Um, the ship was to be named HMAS Protector. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens? Yeah, um, it's an interesting thing to have a look at the uh, the whole concept of the Protector coming out of the old uh, Tide class supply ship. Um, by this stage, uh, all of the aspects that we now take for granted uh, were, were all coming together into uh, one single ship, which was going to be, uh, they called it a fast combat support ship. Uh, we, we would refer to it now as a, uh, a replenishment ship because it was in every sense uh, able to now deliver everything that their customers might need uh, using new technologies such as uh, helicopters to uh, undertake uh, vertical replenishments, etc. Um, the the naval staff requirement uh, back in the early 1960s was to uh, to build two of these ships. Uh, as, as you say, they were going to be called the HMAS Protector, the Protector class. Um, they started that work in the early 1960s and uh, it was going to be done as part of a project uh, to also build some light destroyers at the same time. Um, the ships were going to be pretty much a modified version of the, uh, or similar size as well, to the uh, HMAS Stalwart, which was a destroyer tender, uh, which uh, the Navy office uh, had experience with. They designed it in 1963 um, and then built it in 1968. So they were familiar with that type of ship. Uh, and what they did was they squeezed in all of these new capabilities into this uh, this protector class. Um, the ship was going to be able to supply stores, uh, uh, spare parts, food, uh, carry missiles, which is uh, a complex problem because you now need to carry uh, quite an advanced and sophisticated uh, magazine to carry missiles, uh, as well as other ammunition, which we had a lot of experience with from World War II, uh, that was going to be able to provide diesel oil, uh, fuel for helicopters, and also fresh water. We still, uh, at this stage, it was a time when people needed lots of uh, fresh water to be supplied to top up their tanks. Um, there was going to be uh, six stations uh, for underway replenishment, uh, which we've described earlier, and uh, they also were going to combine this with the new uh, vertrap capability, the vertical replenishment capability, which, we, which would be provided by two uh, seeking-sized helicopters uh, operating from that flight deck. Um, 
it's interesting that these uh, two ships uh, have some statistics which are very familiar to me because when I talk about the new supply class that we currently have, uh, I'm struck by how similar uh, the capability requirements were for those ships uh, with what was being designed. So the ship was going to be about 180 metres long. It was going to be about 20,000 tonnes. Um, it was going to carry uh, 7,500 tonnes of uh, diesel fuel as well as all the other stores, and it could have a speed of 20 knots. Um, it had a huge crew. It was going to be 335 people in that crew. Um, that, that ship, therefore, was going to be something that we in the modern Navy would recognise uh, instantly um, because it would be doing the sorts of things that we, uh, we've, we've done in our careers. Um, the ship was designed to be fast so that it could keep up with the task groups. Um, the ship was designed to carry a reasonable amount, uh, more than sufficient to allow it to remain with the task group and continue to replenishment for a protected uh, period of time. We heard about how the uh, ships in Vietnam worked on the gun line. Uh, the idea being is, is this ship could uh, sit not far away um, and uh, the ships could be resupplied uh, constantly over a period of certainly many weeks, if not a couple of months, before the ship would need to go back and get topped up itself. Um, unfortunately, uh, because of some complications uh, with the way they were trying to contract for the ship, there was going to be a combined build between the CODOC, uh, the Cockatoo Island Dockyard in Sydney, and the Williamtown Dockyard uh, down here in Melbourne, uh, and the complexity of uh, stores, procurements, and how we broke up certain uh, aspects of Navy headquarters into uh what we would now call stovepipes of excellence. Um, and they didn't talk to each other very much in those days. You ended up with a situation where by the late 1970s, um, the pressure was building because they needed to get the supply class replaced, which only had a life of type until about 1980. They needed to get it replaced, uh, but there was a series of delays um, to allow the dockyards to put together their drawings and their plans and make their bids for their contracts. Um, there was issues with bringing in specialists from overseas, particularly from Canada, who had a lot of experience with uh, this type of ship. And uh, there was also issues late in the 1960s, early 70s, with uh, changes in some of the technical aspects of the ship, such as uh, they needed to get different engines, which required a complete redesign it all came to a head. The other thing too is, is that the price had almost uh, had, had increased by fifty percent um, from a budget of about forty million up to about sixty million, and um, they, it then all came to a head with a change of government in uh, nineteen seventy two, and uh, this project and the uh, light destroyer project was subsequently cancelled. Um, so unfortunately, we never saw the protector and her class. Uh, at sea, but it's remarkable the drawings of her look an awful lot like a stretched stalwart. Thank you very much. Um, the, the challenges of, of, of naval construction have been, been around for, for some time. Um, Alison, uh, so the protector class were eventually cancelled. Um, the replacement was to be two French-designed Durance-class uh, replacement ships which were to be built at, at Cockatoo Island. How did the construction of these vessels go? Thanks, Richard. And building on uh, all the work that the previous governments had done with the protector class, the uh, Commonwealth eventually signed a fixed price contract to build HMAS Success uh, to the value of $68 million in 1979. So as you can imagine, by the time the decision was made, HMAS supply was expected to retire in 1980 
Uh, we were already uh, behind the curve and the timeline to deliver the ship. As part of the contract, there was also an option to build a second vessel. So as you've highlighted, Richard, the design was based on the French Durance class uh, and the documentation was meant to be provided by the French company Direction Techniques de Construction Navales, also known as DTCN. Now, the project to construct HMA's success was plagued by problems right from the start. So uh, delays to government decision-making, uh, the government and Navy hadn't defined the project well, uh, there was difficulty translating documentation from French to English, uh, there were delays resolving issues between uh, Vickers Cockatoo Dockyard uh, and the Commonwealth. So all of these contributing factors um, brought about a very difficult shipbuilding experience. There was also one major factor in that Vickers Cockatoo Dockyard hadn't built a major cons naval construction project for over a decade. So they were missing the vital skill sets, they lacked shipbuilding experience, and many of these things contributed to the delays. But on top of that, before they even started the build, they had to upgrade the dockyard to enable the build to go ahead. So it needed to be modernised, they needed to add a 50-tonne crane, they converted, converted some of their old buildings uh, into fabrication workshops, uh, and also they modernised the technology to be able to use the latest computerised um, updates. Uh, so they were really behind the curve before they started. So the keel was laid in August of 1980, uh, and this is where things really started uh, to be delayed. So there were differences between the French and English interpretations of the documentation. But also, production practices in France were very different to production practices in Australia. So this led to extended delays uh, and the costs started to increase significantly. Uh, and as Ainsley has already pointed out, the original uh, budget was around $51 million. The contract was signed for 68 already and it was rising fast. So the government established a technical assistance group uh, to try to assist with some of the problems and stem the, the issues with delays. Uh, they also established a French-Australian steering committee to try to alleviate some of the problems, uh, which was to an extent successful and it prevented further delays but they couldn't recover the time that had already been lost. As a result of the updates and the changes, the Commonwealth had to sign a new contract with Vickers Cockatoo Dockyard in 1983 and this time the value of the contract was over $94 million. So if you look at the original project budget of 51, we're almost double. So this was a fixed price contract uh, and it was also incentive based for Vickers Cockatoo Dockyard. But as you can imagine, this was one of the contributing factors as to why the Commonwealth didn't take up the option for a second ship because the budget for HMAS success was way over uh, what was originally estimated uh, and already we're three years late on what was expected uh, to be delivered in 1980. So success was eventually launched in March 1984 by Her Excellency uh, Lady Stephen, the wife of the then Governor-General Ninian Stephen, and it was commissioned into the RAN in April 1986. Uh, but of note, Success was the last ship built at Cockatoo Dockyard uh, before it closed in 1991. 
So, Tony, building on on this story and the the, the failure, I guess, to to get a second um, uh, uh, ship of the the sort of the success uh, class. Um, so, there's only one replenishment in the the one replenishment ship in the fleet, and there are now no aircraft carriers uh, to do the the replenishment as you described um, earlier. So, a second tanker was was urgently needed. Um, this was to be your old ship, uh, Westralia. Can you explain her origin and her capabilities? Yes. Um, so just to remind uh, listeners, yes, we lost the uh, troop ship Sydney in 1973 and the carrier Melbourne in 82. And then, of course, we just heard about uh, success. So also in the uh, late 1980s, Australia was developing its two-ocean basing concept. And, of course, government was getting... Uh, had more of a national and foreign policy initiatives on the go and it was quickly identified that that second replenishment unit was required. Now the Royal Navy was going through another of its cyclic uh, downsizing uh, initiatives and uh, one of uh, three Royal Fleet auxiliary ships uh, became available and that happened to be the Apple Leaf and uh, in, on the 9th of October 1989, Australia commissioned her as HMAS Westralia. So, Apple Leaf or Westralia, she had originally been built as uh, one of three ships, hence that's why the Royal Navy had these three same ships. Uh, it was called a, a STAT 32 medium-sized petroleum products tanker. It had been built for the Middle East to United Kingdom commercial supply run. Um, her fully laden displacement was in excess of 40,000 tonnes and her net displacement was about 15,000 tonnes. So she could carry a lot of cargo. So the Royal Fleet Auxiliary in the UK had acquired them in 1979 and they modified them to be able to do basic underway replenishment. So in 89, the Australian government leased the ship for five years with an option to buy. So with the introduction into service, West Australia became our largest ship in service and uh, she was capable of moving bulk fuel cargo between ports, doing the underway replenishment of fuel cargo to other ships also doing that simultaneous underway replacement on both sides of dieselene, aviation fuel, fresh water to other warships, and also carrying other ships' bulk frozen and dry goods. And that was used uh, by the use of six on-deck containers. And whenever ships needed those supplies, you always used to do it at anchor. Or vertebrate, because we put a helicopter deck on the back of... Uh, Australia, where you could do the replenishment but not actually have a helicopter land on. So then, of course, we saw Gulf War One, and uh, Australia was sent to relieve success. And then it was uh, the decision was made that we would purchase the ship outright. So um, you know, Australia was used in many roles. And, of course, the most fateful uh, day for her was on the 5th of May in 1998 
when uh, she had a catastrophic engine room fire that unfortunately claimed the lives of four Navy personnel. You've got to remember that because uh, Apple Leaf or West Australia had been designed to a commercial standard, uh, it had a very cavernous engine room space and it had no subdivisions, which is one of the essential things you incorporate into a, a military designed vessel. So it didn't have the same sort of firefighting or damage control uh, equipment, or, or I should say sophistication, that perhaps the French would have incorporated in the Durance class and we've used in success. So if you can imagine the space of you know, 28 by 28 by 60 metres high, and it's vented to fresh air through the funnel space, you know, it was the worst case scenario for a commercial ship or for a ship to have an engine room fire because there was no way you could starve oxygen from the fire, um, which is one of the three ingredients of the fire triangle. If you control the oxygen, you control the fuel or you control the heat, invariably you'll get on top of that fire. I must admit that during my time in command, whenever we were underway, that was one of the major exercises we used to do once a month because it was our greatest fear. And unfortunately, it did happen to my successor. Thank you. Um, so, John, Westralia was uh, replaced by the, the Sirius. What was her origin? Sirius is an interesting ship. Uh, the Royal Australian Navy needed a, a solution quickly to replace the damaged uh, West, West Australia. And uh, what they did is they looked for a commercial option and they found the motor tanker Delos, uh, which had been commercially built. Uh, what's interesting about her was she met the IMO standards of having a double hull, a double bottom. And this is something that had been introduced at around about that time that all of these tankers henceforth would have double bottoms uh, to prevent uh, uh, maritime disasters where, you know, the environment is... Uh, contaminated. So um, the Delos was an attractive option. Uh, prior to entering REN service, um, and she she did this in the in the early 2000s, she was modified extensively. Uh, she had a flight deck put on the back to be able to receive vertical replenishment, the accommodation, the electronics, the messes, all equipped to, to better meet uh, naval standards or mil-spec standards if you like. Uh, she commissioned in our Navy in the, on the 16th of September 2006 and she could carry 34,000 cubic metres of fuel which included 5,000 cubic metres of aviation spirit. So a really, really useful ship. What needs to be remembered and what hasn't been discussed so far is that by this point in time, the Royal Australian Navy is very much a two-ocean Navy. In the east, we have success based in Sydney, and in the west, we have Westralia based over in Fleet Base West at HMAS Stirling, and that indeed would be where Sirius would operate as well. So we've now learnt you know, that we need a tanker on the east coast, a tanker on the west coast. So we're getting there slowly, if you see what I'm saying. Um, Sirius, she's provided really, really good service to the uh, Royal Australian Navy. She's due to uh, retire from service uh, in the near future, but during that time she's been involved in pretty well every major exercise that's been uh, held in and around Australia, and she's also taken part in sustaining those ships that have been assigned to Operation Resolute. So a very, very useful gap filler for capability. Thank you. Um, 
Alison, so far we've we've had a story of, of sort of one-off replacement ships, uh, replenishment ships, and sort of stopgap filler um, uh, type ships that have been either acquired for, from the British or, or, in the case of Sirius, taken up from from trade. Um, what are the challenges posed by by sort of this mix um, of, of replenishment ships? The main challenges associated with this mix is we have a number of single ships of class. Uh, the challenges are come with managing skill sets, whereby you often find that uh, each individual ship has its individual requirements for maintenance, for running, uh, training for people uh, provides a significant burden since you are training for different types of ships as opposed to three to four ships of the same class. Similarly, you have the problem whereby uh, you have the same staff being posted to the same ship on a repeated basis at different ranks, which presents uh, some challenges with managing culture, uh, but also with allowing those sailors the opportunity to test their skill sets with other ships of type. At the same time, uh, as those ships age, the challenges become more difficult to maintain them, particularly with regard to the Durance class trying to get spares and equipment that has to come from the other side of the globe or it has to be manufactured because as the ships age into their 20 uh, and 30 years old, those spares are much more difficult to come by uh, and also the experience levels of our staff in able to keep those ships running. There's also one more challenge as those ships age, and that is about the morale of the staff on board. So as, as ships age, obviously uh, there is a curve with regard to maintenance, uh, and we limit the amount of maintenance that is provided, simply because they're getting closer to their end of life. But in our experience, we know that as they get closer to end of life, we have to spend more on them to keep them running so they can deliver on the mission that they need to do. So the morale occurs where there's this challenge and balance between supporting the new replacement ships and the new projects with keeping ageing ships running. Uh, and there is in some ways among our staffs, and we experienced it in success, and that is whereby you have ship envy, whereby the ship's company look at the newer uh, modern, well-designed, fast ships that are being introduced into the fleet uh, and they want to be part of that uh, and they sometimes can see themselves as the poor relation uh, and not well supported. Now uh, their uh, views of that may be misplaced, however it's a challenge for the leadership of that ship to keep them focused on the job uh, and keep them focused on things like this is our mission. So for example, when I was in command, I reinvigorated the term the battle tanker and focused the ship's company on our RAS rig being our combat system. And that was how we delivered for the fleet. So we were there to keep them fueled, replenished, stored, ammunitioned, whatever it was that they needed, we could provide it so that they could do their mission. And then our mission was to keep them running. Ship envy and battle tanker, I like it. Um, and mind you, success did steal it from Australia. Oh, really? Okay. Really? <laughs> oh, we've, we've got a bit of tension on the couch here. Um, Ainsley, uh, moving on. So the, the next generation of, of replenishment ships, supply and stalwart, finally achieved the, the sort of the long-held desire of the Navy to have um, two replenishment ships of the same class. Can you tell us a little bit about 
these these replenishment ships and kind of round off where we've we've actually sort of come to at the end of this this long story. Thanks. Um, I commanded uh, success at the end of 2010, uh, where we took her up to Singapore and got her double hulled to become IMO compliant. And uh, I then worked in what was the perfect storm of Navy's desperate need to have replenishment ships at sea uh, with the aging ship and uh, everything that Commodore Norris has talked about with the problems of running what we called uh, orphan ships. Um, the Navy had long ago established the vital need to have two replenishment ships uh, for a bunch of different reasons, not only the two ocean basing policy, but you look at how you keep maintaining them. At some point, those ships have to go into a deep uh, refit. And uh, our experience in success was that uh, you couldn't uh, be certain that your ship wouldn't then break as well. So we caused all sorts of uh, strategic um, nausea uh, for uh, our fleet because without a replenishment ship, we weren't in the game. We could ally ourselves with the uh, USN and other allied nations and be part of their strategic uh, resupply network with replenishment ships. Um, but for us to be able to take our own task forces uh, where we wanted to go, uh, we needed the replenishment ships. I was... Um, so I was conscious uh, when I walked into the project because my next job was to write the first pass cabinet submission for the new supply class. Um, and uh, there was a couple of really important things that were in the forefront of all of our minds at the time. Um, first up, uh, we wanted a replenishment ship. Uh, we wanted something that was genuinely uh, capable of delivering all of the, re the effects that we needed. Um, whilst uh, Sirius was an amazing ship and it did an ex excellent job during her life and without her, to be honest, we would have uh, really suffered uh, as a Navy. Um, she was at the end of the day uh, oiler. Uh, we needed the ability to uh, deliver all of the bits that a fleet needed. Um, I was driven, we were driven at the time by also a couple of other things. One, one was an interesting concept about what do you want your replenishment ships to look like? Um, we broke that down into a bunch of capability requirements and we had a bunch of what we called mandatory requirements and desirable requirements. Mandatory were based on science, uh, a lot of maths, um, working out things like how fast your ships could go, how much they needed, uh, how often, and uh, what you could actually carry. So the two critical things that we always looked at in the, in the design of our new replenishment ships was size, as in capacity, um, not so much the size of the ship, but how much it could carry and how fast it was. Because there were a bunch of different ways you can use replenishment ships. You can have something like uh, the Sirius, which is slow but carries a lot. Um, problem is she can't keep up with the fleet. So she's a good strategic resupply uh, vessel and she can sit well outside of uh, a conflict zone and ships can go back to her to get refuelled. And she can stay there forever because she has a huge amount of fuel. But you've got to protect her. You can have a very small uh, but very fast uh, resupply ship uh, which can stay with the fleet and defend itself and race backwards and forwards between either a ship like Sirius or a port to be uh, stocked up and then come back to the fleet um, or you can have the Goldilocks which is the supply class it's in the middle it carries enough fuel and stores and spare parts to be able to uh, keep with the fleet for months and it's fast enough to keep up with the fleet 
And more importantly, we also wanted a purpose-built ship that would also be able to defend itself um, because there will be times where we will want to send that ship off by itself to uh, go from one uh, area of operations to another. Uh, and it also has to have the ability to uh, defend itself when it's part of a task group. So those were the key things that we were looking at. How fast could it, was it and how much could it carry? Um, and we looked around and one of the other dictums that we operated under was we wanted to learn from the problems that had brought us to this point, uh, which was we wanted a low risk build. We wanted that ship. We wanted it on time. We wanted it on budget because we needed to get that replenishment capability. And we were very conscious of the fragile state of our only uh, replenishment ship, the success. So we also looked for a project uh, with a proven design and uh, we were also looking uh, initially anyway at uh, proven builds. We wanted to get somebody who could deliver us a product quickly and on the price that we had agreed to um, so that we wouldn't have the protector and the success stories repeat. So part of the competition was uh, and part of the great thing about my job was I got to uh, sea ride on the Cantabria and also got to sea ride on another ship uh, which was part of the German Navy great thing I could kick the tyres open up the doors have a look around it was awesome um, and uh, we, we looked at the design and the capability of the uh, of the Cantabria class and it met our mandatory requirements uh, it was a proven design and more importantly it uh, fit with the fleet that we had um, it was designed to resupply a LHD, a landing helicopter dock. Um, it was designed to uh, have the same sorts of parts that exist in many of our other ships. It had the same weapon systems. It had the same combat systems. Uh, it allowed us to get away from that orphan ship problem where I could move sailors around from this ship to others. Um, and I could also make sure that uh, when we turned up, we could deliver everything that we needed. It was also designed uh, to allow us to do things like take rubbish off the LHDs. Something that we never think about is how much rubbish uh, an LHD with a crew of 600 people plus 1,000 soldiers, they generate a lot of rubbish. So we now have the ability to take that rubbish off that ship and get rid of it, uh, which we had never had before. Um, the ship's able to do everything that we uh, had always needed, um, including uh, vertical replenishment and uh, alongside refueling and replenishing concurrently. So it was going to replace that capability that success had. And uh, one of the interesting things is, is that we've also gone full circle. We haven't done a stern refuelings for a very long time um, because it's slow and uh, it's not uh, as efficient. Um, but it's also very, very good capability to have in very, very rough weather. Um, it's a safer way of passing fuel across. So that's also a capability that uh, has been brought back into that new ship. So the two ships, the supply and the stalwart, um, the, uh, I was pleased to be able to see the supply arrive uh, at HMAS Sterling when I was over there. And I have to say I had a little bit of a tear in my eye, which was quickly whisked away by the howling gale, uh, which uh, is common over in that part of the world. Um, but it was great to see that uh, amazing ship turn up um, with a couple of exceptions pretty much as we expected it. So it's very exciting time for us now in the Navy that we are now going to have these two ships and uh, they are going to be very capable and we will we will be a proper, a proper blue water Navy. Thank you. It's a, a really nice uh, wrap to this this story. Um, conscious that the panel all have uh, extensive extensive uh, service in Success in Australia, 
Um, I'd like to conclude the podcast by asking each of you to give a, a lasting memory of, of your ships. Um, I'm going to start with, with you, Alison. Thanks, Richard. So uh, during my command in March 2014, uh, HMAS Success was sailed at very short notice from Fremantle to participate and lead the maritime search for the missing Malaysian airliner MH370. So HMAS Success was the right ship in the right place at the right time to undertake that search. The initial search point was 1,400 nautical miles southwest of Perth in the southern Indian Ocean. Uh, and due to her capabilities, Success was able the, one of the few ships in the RAN at that time able to make the transit down to the search area, conduct the search and get back to the Australian station or back to Fremantle on the fuel and capacity and replenishment capability that she had. The majority of the other units in the RAN at that time would have required the support of a replenishment vessel to get down there, conduct the search and return safely. So uh, we are indebted, I guess, to the uh, replenishment capability that was available at that time to enable Australia to make such a huge contribution to the search for the missing Malaysian airliner at that time. Thank you. Uh, Tony? Yes, well, Australia was a challenging ship to command and manage. Being a commercial design, she was designed to keep running constantly, not be shut down like we do in Navy. So every time we used to sail, the first 24 hours were invariably getting rid of all the gremlins in the machinery system. The, uh, when I had to sail with Australia to go rescue Adelaide, who went to go rescue Dubois and Bullymore from the Vendee Globe uh, Yacht Race 97. I do quip a little bit there. But, um, you know, it got to about midnight after sailing 1600 that afternoon. I thought, I can't keep going because I had breakdown after breakdown after breakdown. And then all of a sudden the ship just clicked and everything hummed and the ship operated beautifully. Um, because of her size, you had to remember what your displacement was. The ship handled completely differently if you were fully laden to when you were light. And uh, many a navigator, new navigator on board used to come to grief, not understanding these concepts. Thank you. Um, John? I'd like to uh, comment on my time in success. I had two stints in success. Uh, one was a, what we call a pierhead jump, where I got a tap on the shoulder at very short notice that, you know, we need somebody in this ship. And that was really interesting because uh, success was not a year in commission at that point. It was May 1987, and uh, the RN fleet sailed up for the first Fiji coup. And the reason that we were able to remain off Fiji for as long as we did was because we had success there. Um, we've heard a little bit about the, the, the troubled start to Successor's life, but I think that's actually giving her a bum rap. Uh, her service to the Royal Australian Navy was very, very valuable. She proved a very, very capable ship throughout the majority of her uh, service. Uh, she served in Gulf War One. She was in East Timor. Uh, she was, took part in Operation Belize up in Bougainville. During my time in her, which was uh, by which time she was 10 years old, um, she had really settled down into a very, very sort of good battle rhythm about, you know, refuelling other ships and things. And I think my enduring memory for her was RIMPAC 96, where we refuelled seven ships in one morning, uh, the final of which was uh, the United States 
Coast Guard cutter Sherman, which had a, a bounced off the side of us and then took off at right angles and took Station 5 and all the hoses and the rigs with her. Uh, it was a credit to the team on board that they had that rig back in operation within 24 hours. So that sort of highlights the fact that if you think of um, from a terrestrial or a landsman's point of view, uh, an, in, an industrial site or a distribution warehouse that provides stores and fuel and all of those sorts of things on land, imagine that taking that to sea in rough weather and uh, and dealing with it. So it's, it's actually a moving, floating industrial site uh, which can move anything up to 300 nautical miles a day. So very, very capable. I think success served the Navy, sorry, success served the Navy extremely well. Uh, the one thing we haven't covered in this podcast is what happens when a tank is at sea and it runs out of fuel? They do a console RAS. Uh, and this was the case that uh, for us in RIMPAC 96, where we actually went alongside a merchant ship and spent another six hours refilling our own bunkers to stay actually out at sea and do our job. Thank you. Um, finally, uh, Ainsley? Um, success is the only ship I ever served in twice. Uh, I was on there as a midshipman under the legendary uh, Captain Graham Sloper and uh, was on board there when the HMAS Canberra um, came in a little bit close and uh, put a big long dent on the port quarter there. So I delighted in coming back when I was uh, finishing my sea time uh, to regularly pop into the grot and uh, keep the midshipmen on their toes and tell them all about the story about the time that uh, I was on board when the, when the ship got hit by the HMAS Canberra. Um, my, my experience in success, uh, sadly, was a frustrating one. Uh, I, I describe it as a dream unfulfilled. Um, the, uh, the ship was uh, in the final stages of what we call the bathtub curve, which is uh, where things are going wrong. As Commodore Norris talked about, the uh, issues with uh, being an orphan ship, uh, resupplies, crew, etc. So we had a, 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 a terrible time trying to get that ship uh, up and running. Um, but what I will never forget is that we had, even with all of that, such a focus crew, such a uh, such a clearly uh, uh, focused uh, identity in what we provided to the fleet, and uh, the the desperate desire to get it back out to uh, become the battle tanker uh, of old, because we knew that it was still capable of doing all of that sort of stuff. So it was great to see what happened to it afterwards, and uh, I'm certainly. Um, and it was a it was a great great fun to drive. It was such a um, Captain Tony Rayner described it as an honest ship to drive. You know, it, it behaved well. Uh, you could drive it, throw it around. Um, in some ways, it was uh, like a little warship uh, sports car. Um, so I, I remember it fondly. Uh, the times that it was running, it was brilliant, and you could see what it could be doing. Um, I just never got a chance to see it during my time, really getting out and getting beyond what uh, what we were limited to. So a great ship, and uh, be sad to see. Well, I'm sad that it's gone. Thank you. Um, sadly, that's all we've got time for. My thanks to Alison Norris, John Perryman, Ainsley Morthorpe and Tony Ladimirsky. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group and the Creative Media Unit at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us and if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so that other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.